The opinions expressed are those of the speaker as of the time of this recording and may not come to pass. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Any company mentions are for illustrative purposes and do not represent a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. We're here as we are every Saturday morning at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and to hopefully provide you some good insights so that you can make some informed decisions on your behalf. Now, if you have questions that you'd like to send us for use uh, in further broadcasts, all you need to do is send us an email to info at opus, O-P-U-S, 111group.com. We'll get it, and then we'll uh, integrate it into the show. So, an interesting week, wouldn't you agree? Especially yesterday uh, when we got the word about the president, and um, we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about the elections. We'll talk about the economy and the markets in general. Right now, I just want to give, since we ended the quarter, just kind of give you a uh, a kind of a recap of where we wound up. And uh, interestingly, through the first three quarters of this year, now you wouldn't know this from a lot of the press coverage, but we've had more stocks, that's around 25, are up more than 400% during the first three quarters of the year. And that's uh, those are companies starting at $100 million, worth at least $100 million. Tupperware was one of them. I'll bet that did, name didn't come right to your head. Now, uh, for the month, that was to say September, uh, the S&P was down 3.9%, Dow down 2.3%, and the NASDAQ down 5.2%. However, and this is kind of really gives, I think, a good uh, picture about investing, is that the S&P for the quarter gained 8.5%, and that included that drop. The Dow was up 7.6%. The NASDAQ for the quarter, for the third quarter, was up 11%, and it's up, uh, well, let's see, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, uh, but it's had its first, excuse me, biggest two-quarter gain since 2000. And so we had uh, the the best two-quarter performance since 2009. Year-to-date, the Dow is still down. It's down 2.8%. S&P up about 4 NASDAQ uh, year-to-date higher by about 23%. Now, again, when you're looking at your results, unless you just own one of those indices, your returns are going to vary. So just understand that that's just a reference point. Now, gold had its worst monthly performance since November of 2016. Silver had its worst month uh, last month uh, since September 2011. It was down about 17%. And... uh, you know, the historical, <laughs> I know, I'm on record as not being a gold person, but here's why. The historical record of gold adjusted for inflation over many centuries has been about zero. It pays no dividend and is really only attractive to those folks who fear, operative term, that paper assets like stocks will somehow, well, not be worth anything. They've been having that conversation for a long time and it just hasn't happened yet, but Let's go on to something much more important about this election. Uh, my intention here is, now I have my own very strong feelings about who I would like to win and so on and so forth. But in my job, I have to steer right, well, the middle line and so folks make good informed decisions and that's what I'm going to try and help you to do now. 
Now, over my 47 years of being an investment professional, I've now been part of 13 presidential elections, not counting this one coming up. And the president's diagnosis really shouldn't have much impact on the fundamentals for stocks. And yesterday morning's sell-off wasn't warranted, as some strategists said. It was down over 400 and some points right off the bat. It's one of those what they call knee-jerk reactions. Uh, and the Dow itself, uh, jeepers, I forgot to do that. The Dow closed at 27,682 off 134 points. S&P ended at 3348. The Nasdaq at 11,075. Gold settled at 1,900 dollars. Silver at 2373. Crude dropped to 3705 a barrel. Ten-year Treasury up at 0.69 percent, and soft white wheat continued at 565 a bushel. So I think this year you have very little to gain by looking too closely at the presidential election, any other election for that matter. You know, with the talking heads uh, having weighed in on who landed the most punches and theorizing about how the debate uh, could affect the results, uh, here's some reminders for you about perspective. Your opinion of who won the debate probably rested heavily on your opinions at the start of the program and the slant of the overall coverage you chose to follow. Both candidates know this. They were playing to their chosen audiences, hitting all their talking points and applause lines. You know, triggering feelings to motivate turnout is their goal. And that seems to be a logical enough approach for them, since in all likelihood, People have already made up their minds about these candidates. Very few voters are genuinely undecided. Most of the debate storylines are actually just pure sociology, well outside the realm of stock market drivers. Collectively, however, they do illustrate what debates really are. They're political theater. And as a result, these debates are good for cable news ratings and perhaps Saturday Night Live writers, but they sure won't help you assess the election's outcome or its influence on the markets. In this regard, I do have some strongly felt advice for our investors, not just our opus investors, but obviously all you folks who are listening. First and foremost, calm down. Think it through. You know, as a result of being able to do this program, I'm regularly in touch with many investors as well as talking with folks otherwise. And I understand that this election seems to have helped create extraordinarily high levels of investor anxiety. And it's not just the usual, well, if he gets elected or re-elected, I'm moving to Canada stuff, which is normal. Though in actuality, I've never heard of any of these whiner types actually going there or anywhere else permanently. But that's neither here nor there. So take your political convictions completely out of your investment decision-making. I know that's hard. It's really hard, but that's exactly why you need to do it. Don't take it from me. Take it from uh, our most admired and perhaps least imitated investor, the sage of Omaha, Mr. Warren Buffett. He said, if you mix politics with your investment decisions, you're making a big mistake. And by the way, in that same interview, I think this is kind of funny, Mr. Buffett pointed out that for about half his career as a, shall we say, rather successful investor, the president in office has been the guy he voted against. Kind of says something, doesn't it? 
The mistake I think a lot of investors seem bent on making these days is thinking that the person and the policies of the president in office are imper- excuse me, importantly correlated to the stock market. In fact, there's no basis for this conviction. But at times like this, facts go out the window. Welcome to Cable News. You know, two relatively recent examples I think you can uh, appreciate. There was a subprime mortgage bubble that inflated over several years and then burst into a crisis. Now, that happened during the two-term presidency of a strongly free market Republican. Now, during the following two terms of, uh, I think it's safe to say, strongly progressive Democrat, the um, market went up every year for eight years. So if you based your investment strategy on the policy pronouncements of either or both men, you got majorly skunked, twice as a matter of fact. And now in a month, you're going to have the opportunity to go for the trifecta. Well, no matter who gets elected, superior companies of the U.S. and the world will continue to thrive by acting in their shareholders' best interest. If they're facing heavy taxes, heavy-handed regulation, tariffs, whatever, a well-managed business will simply reduce or even stop what they're doing in that regard so that uh, because they don't want to be punished for those kinds of things. In time, most, if not all, those companies tend to find other avenues of enterprise that they're free to earn a return for and pay dividends to shareholders. And since it's actually the combination of earnings and dividends that drive stock prices, not headlines, certainly, especially in the long run, Ingenuity, innovation, and financial discipline will likely be rewarded in the future as they've been in the past. Now, you can't predict, much less time, what the market's going to do around the election, and you mustn't fault yourself for this, neither can anybody else. So, given today's historically elevated levels of investor anxiety, a lot of folks have convinced themselves it'd be a real cool idea just to get out, wait till the election blows over, and then get back in. Uh, no. Because even setting aside the self-inflicted wound of unnecessary capital gains taxation in your non-retirement accounts, this is just historically a bad idea. The assumption that you you will actually be able to get back in at lower prices is again one of those deeply attractive impulses for which there's no basis in the historical record. And who said it's going to go lower? Hearing this, many of you may be tempted to fall back on that forward phrase that has crushed legions of investors. And that is that this time it's different. Well, it's not, so don't. And when you radically alter your long-term portfolio due to current events, even when you tell yourself just this once, too many people have found that to their regret that once they've done that, they're never able to get back in. There's a couple of things I want to touch on here in general market uh, kind of, I don't know, views. One is that uh, there's this talk going around that uh, we're we're deja vuing, as it were. We're gonna uh, we're moving into just like we were in the late '90s. Uh, I'm gonna kind of put paid to that one, and then I wanna hopefully uh, hopefully give you some uh, clarity on what volatility is all about. So you know, due to uh, some of the similarities in our market now in the late '90s, uh, you know, there's really that's about it. Some similarities. There's one big piece of evidence, I think, that suggests we're not repeating the dot-com bubble is the lower, yep, and I, that's true, believe it or not, lower growth rate of tech stocks compared to the late 90s. Over the past five years, the NASDAQ, which is where the big tech stocks live, the index where it lives, 
has increased in value by 127%. Not too shabby. Well, <laughs> except in the dot-com era, the Nasdaq was up 456%, which for those of you keeping score at home is more. Now, while most of the price changes in the late 90s were driven by high expectations, perhaps not exactly couched in reality, far more of the price uh, movement we see today is driven by changes in improving fundamentals and earnings, which is okay. And while today's tech giants have grown two and a half to six times over these last five years, the biggest tech companies in the 90s grew between 11 and 40 times. And... Uh, you know, that's, again, a little hot, as we say. Now, stock valuations today are far lower and more in line with investor expectations than back then. For example, if you look at the uh, what they call the price-to-earnings ratio of U.S. stocks from the 1960s, where you divide the price of the S&P by its earnings, you can see that valuations today are nowhere near what they were in the late 90s. You know, P.E. ratios aren't a be-all, end-all, but it's just one tool to help you see whether a company is over or undervalued by measuring its current share price relative to its per-share earnings, hence the P.E. ratio. You know, and a high P.E. typically indicates a company that is overvalued or and or a growth company. Uh, so <laughs> which one is it, right? Um, the current market P.E. of 29.04 is still far below the high of 44 in December 99, which was right before everything kind of peaked. Now, I think that this suggests that stocks are only somewhat expensive relative to trends. Credit Suisse uh, recently uh, added this. They said that tech stocks were only modestly expensive when using free cash flow yield compared to broader market. Now, in addition, if we take the inverse of the P-E ratio, and that's the EP, you know, earnings yield, they call it. We can now see how today's valuations seem pretty reasonable given investor expectations. For example, uh, the PE uh, at 2904 implies an earnings yield for stocks of 3.3%. Now, in the 10-year dot-com bubble, 10-year treasuries were yielding 6% and stocks only yielded 22 so people are like, what? You know, because I can beat that up. But that difference in yield also explained why the dot-com bubble finally kind of gave way because you say, well, now, wait a minute. Why should I get a 2.2% yield on these crazy risky stocks when I get a 6% from these <laughs> pretty much for sure bonds? Yeah, well, that's always the risk, isn't it? So today, the story's quite different. Stocks are yielding that 3.3%. Bonds are yielding less than 1%, and bond yields have been going down globally for 10 years. The one-year U.S. Treasury right now is 0.12%. The 10-year, 0.69. The 30-year, only 1.47, and that was as of uh, Friday the 2nd. So for those of you who feel that in terms of long-term investing, bonds are safe and stocks are risky, well, we have to ask something like, I'm not sure we're defining risk and safety the same way. You know, what do they mean to you? And, and we need to do the same thing with volatility. In my opinion, it's highly unlikely that those who can carry around only a, who carry around only a purely negative 
how would I say, definition of the word volatility, well, they can't really hardly ever succeed as a stock investor. I believe that most investors define volatility the same way and that they almost certainly come back with that negative response. It's in that um, the break, break. For those of you who feel that in terms of long-term investing, bonds are safe and stocks risky, we usually have to ask something like, well, we're probably not defining risk and safety the same way, and what do they mean to you? So we need to do that same thing with volatility. In my opinion, it's highly unlikely that those who can carry around only a purely negative view of the word volatility, well, they're going to have a really hard time to succeed as a stock investor. And I believe that most investors define volatility the same way and that they almost certainly come back with a negative response. Human, nature, human nature's definition of volatility is simply this, down a lot in a quick hurry. And that's not what it means at all. Volatility, properly understood, is not and never was specifically related only to market drops. That's a media kind of construct. Okay, they pick that they they have taken advantage of that term because, in fact, it's perfectly neutral in finance. The definition of volatility is, and I'm quoting, the degree of variation of a trading series over time. There's nothing in that definition that says even hints that volatility is a degree of negative variation in a series of prices because that's simply wrong. Volatility is the extent to which prices wander above and below their trend lines. Now, this is the way human nature misunderstands the movement of stock prices. Worse, this same misunderstanding gives downward fluctuations much more importance than they really have because the brain says, volatility, well, that's down, that's bad, that's a risk, that must mean loss, oh my goodness. Um... Try to disabuse yourself of that notion, okay? Now, since 1926, the average annual compound rate of total return for the S&P has been about 10%. But in those past 94 years, the S&P's annual return was between 8 and 12, only six of those years. In all the other years, the return was either way above, 69 of the years it was way above, or way below in 25 of the years, that 10% average. So that simply says the market was volatile. The biggest down year in all that period was a negative 43%. Yeah, okay, give that a volatile vote. The biggest up year was 54% to the upside. We'll take that as volatile too. But nobody complains when it's volatile up, do they? I simply want you to understand, accept that volatility, correctly defined, is simply a neutral description of price movements, again, above and beyond a trend line. It's, preci it's precisely because of the variation of stock returns, and because you can't time those, that an efficient market demands that the long-term real returns after tax, after inflation, that you receive from mainstream stocks have historically been more than twice, twice the real returns of comparable bonds. Peter Lynch, the world-famous money manager, says, time is on your side when you own shares of superior companies. You know, it's going to be your steely-eyed calm composure rather than your discomfort that will carry your day. Uh, 
I found this particular bit interesting. The applications for employee ID numbers, which are what you use to start a, a business, uh, are up a bunch. Uh, matter of fact, they uh, folks have ordered or started whatever 3.2 million of these applications this year. It was 2.7 at this time last year. So folks are taking advantage of their skill sets and trying to get their own business going. After all, we are an economy of small businesses, aren't we? Now, the gross domestic product numbers, uh, the, uh, how would I say, uh, last revision for their third quarter came out on Wednesday, and it did show uh, the GDP dropping at a rate of 31.4%, which was a little bit better than <laughs> at 317 but, you know, I think we can call that hair-splitting, right? You know, these shutdowns, these lockdowns, have wreaked havoc on supply chains in particular. Transportation challenges, labor shortages, limitations on the number of folks who can be present at any time. And so this has generated a sustained headwind to the process of getting back to business and are expected to remain for the foreseeable future for reasons best known to the politicians, I'm sure, representing one of the biggest headwinds to even faster production and inventory growth. A, a sustainable recovery can't rely on stimulus to move it forward. It requires reopening. Now, the conference board says consumer confidence jumped much more than expected in September. Construction, excuse me, construction spending was reported as having risen in August by 3.5%. Strong growth in home building, we'll talk about real estate in a minute, paired with uh, increased public spending on highways and streets was uh, one of the reasons. Now, incomes fell and spending rose in August as uh, we continued our path back. The move lower is slightly lower, and overall income wasn't as bad as it seems because we have rising private sector wages and salaries more than offset a decline in unemployment benefits. The manufacturing sector grew in September, broad-based, 14 of 18 industries reporting expansion, and this suggests activity should remain strong for the foreseeable future. Now, let me interject editorially. Uh, you know... <laughs> In all the noise that you hear in the news and, and wherever, commentary, it seems to be against the law to talk about positive stuff. That's one of my things. I want you to know that there are good things going on out there and that it, the world is not coming to an end, contrary to what these drones uh, at these uh, places would like you to believe. We have good things going on here, folks. You got to have confidence. You got to be able to look forward. And if you're just going to do the, uh, I want to say, fetal position move, well, I feel sorry for you. So right now, here's another bit: non-farm payrolls rose by a lower than expected 661 in September, but the unemployment rate was 7.9, which is down. Now, and there was a lot of wailing and gnashing about, oh look, we're not hiring as many people. That means everything's slowing down. Well, now hold that thought, because when you're recovering, you're starting from, you know, dead zero, and any additions you make on a percentage basis are going to be quite significant. And as things become more settled, you're not going to be able to jump uh, the, by those increments every time. I'm not saying that uh, we don't need to see faster growth in, in the uh, employment sector. No, no. I very much think that they should be doing that. However... Uh, don't just use that as your be-all, end-all determination. 
uh, on the inflation front. We've seen prices paid rise in August. Now we're seeing costs rise in aluminum, copper, freight, uh, the transportation index, the Dow Transportation Index, doing very well. Uh, and again, that's uh, as things start opening up, you're getting the di- distributors uh, working. Um, and as you see these uh, aluminum, copper, freight, uh, but these basic materials are uh, indicators usually of a recovery um, in the cyclical market, cyclical part of the market, which is to say the uh, part dependent upon economic activity. And in that regard, uh, that's a good thing because that means we're transitioning and moving forward. So there is the potential for more growth just taking advantage of these companies and sectors that have not moved uh, as others have in the last year or so. Now, we do expect inflation is going to continue to trend higher in the months ahead, but toward the 2% uh, year-to-year pace that you know, that's pretty much been the Fed's target, though they did recently make, <laughs> how would I say, a plus or minus move. Uh, but don't expect the faster pace of inflation to mean that the policy is going to be, monetary policy is going to be tightening anytime soon. I didn't mean, why? Uh, the recovery is clearly underway, and now the focus is shifting toward the ability of different companies to return to business and meet the demand for their stuff. You know, it's not smooth sailing yet by any stretch, but the path is continuing to improve. Now, this uh, real estate, have you heard? <laughs> real estate market's doing pretty good. Now, in any recovery, the real estate market is typically the last to come back. Now, we can go back to 2008 and say, you know, it's been a little long time coming, but I think you can agree that we're well past the uh, balance move. Uh because there was so little building being done uh, in from 08 to 12 or so, uh, that's one of the reasons you've got such uh, price disparities and people are not being able to find properties because the supply is down. It's supply demand, folks. Strong demand from home buyers in July, along with the rock bottom mortgage rates, did uh, help cause uh, home prices to continue to grow. Home values, uh, this according to CareLogic Case Schiller, said they said that home values up 4.8% annually, which was up from 4.3% in uh, June. Um, Phoenix, Seattle, Charlotte, the highest annual gains among the cities. Phoenix up 9.2, Seattle up 7, Charlotte up 6. And it's really this index, this particular index, is a three-month running average. So that's prices May, June, July. So more recent data from others suggest that prices are strengthening even more into this uh, month. Now, existing home sales reached a nearly 14-year high, 6 million units, 10.5% increase year over year. Pending home sales up 8.8% in August. That's a record high pace, uh, which they kept National Association of Realtors kept records back to January 01. This is the highest since then. Uh, sales up 24% that higher than in August of last year. That's pretty significant. Now, these sales, pending home sales, track the signed contracts on existing homes, not closing. So these are an indicator of closed sales in the next one or two months. And uh, in the first read on September demand, we've seen homes selling 12 days faster than they did a year ago. That's according to Realtor.com. They usually do sell faster in September, but 
This year they sold 39% faster, which is uh, above the 25% usual rate for this time of uh, year. And it says here it took only 54 days to sell a home during September. That's the shortest time since Realtor.com started tracking that metric back to 2016. In 2016, it took a whole 78 days to do it. So not exactly uh, long then either, but uh, we're much shorter now. And again, the supply demand is going to continue to go. As long as you have low interest rates, you'll see uh, low mortgage rates. Uh, the, the biggest challenge is finding qualified people to uh, work to build the homes. Uh, and again, letting some of these lockdown things get done so that these guys can actually get some work done and build some properties. Um, as you can perhaps guess, I'm not a big fan of the whole lockdown thing, but that's a whole nother deal, isn't it? Uh, so more to the point let's uh take a break we'll be back after uh, some words and then have a few words uh, for you from the analysts and pundits about what they think is coming up in the marketplace now i want to talk one thing before i get into the uh, some of the comments the uh, pundits and so on have about the markets going forward um you know there's talk about a bubble that's one of the biggest most overused terms in investing i think but nonetheless uh, you know, it's been talked about just like uh, early in the program, we talked about how that 90s, uh, you know, are supposedly coming back. Well, uh, once again, I get a call on uh, Mr. Buffett, who had said, um, and I'm quoting, people start being interested in something because it's going up, not because they understand it. But the guy next door, who they know is dumber than they are, is getting rich and they aren't. That. <laughs> You can't have a bubble in common stocks while much of the investing public is net selling of stocks as it has been with greater or lesser amounts for the last 12 years and counting. Matter of fact, and again, our markets are up year to date pretty much except for the Dow. In the first eight months of this year, just this year, with the S&P, as we said earlier, up about 3.4, the NASDAQ up 21 plus both stock mutual funds and stock ETFs have had net outflows of $226 billion. Now, it seems to me that the people who are doing this selling, now, admittedly, folks need money for one thing or another, but not that kind of money. And so I'm thinking that they're, they're doing that because, well, they don't study history. I mean, if you look at the markets over time, uh, they go up. Okay, 70% of the time, markets are higher. I'm not talking about 80 and 90%, they're just higher. So, okay, so that's a pretty good odd. Better than any baseball person could do. You know, those guys get paid all the money in the world for being right three times out of 10. <laughs> and here you're going to be right seven times out of 10 just by sitting around and looking out the window. That's a pretty good deal. Now, you know, you, you, you can't have a bubble when the percentage of what is called affluent households, that's income above 100000 annually, holds stocks, well, the percentage of those folks holding stocks in some form or another is still falling. In 2000, the average ownership was 89% uh, through, through 2017, and it's 84% now. 
And again, you can't have a bubble when the American Association of Individual Investors Survey, which is, interestingly enough, focused on individual investors, and that's who it makes up the group. Almost half of the folks surveyed are bearish. The average historical average for that is 30%. And fewer than 24% are bullish. Now, this survey is also a notoriously counter indicator so take that for what it's worth but that's how most people are thinking now again you're you're not uh, apparently thinking longer term and you say well god you know it could go down yeah that's right they go down and then they go up remember we were talking about volatility before that's a normal thing that's what they do and finally you can't have a bubble when the default emotional selling of the individual investor is panic you know, if you doubt this, how do you explain the ability of the VIX, the the uh, uh, option that uh, tracks supposedly tracks uh, volatility, to break out into all-time high ground last March? You know, a bubble can only happen when the individual investor, as a class, is stricken with this conviction that everybody's getting rich except me. Now, we're really a long way from that moment. Matter of fact, we're probably longer away from it than where we were in the beginning of February. But um, when you haven't seen a gold or silver ad in about 18 months and that when the VIX is down at four, well, then maybe we'll talk. But in, in the meantime, please don't give it that much attention. Now, the outlook. It appears that the conventional wisdom of folks, uh, and again, Conventional wisdom usually isn't because if you want to, you know, the contrarian theory of investing says uh, don't do what everybody else is doing. So I'll just, that's for what it's worth. Anyhow, conventional wisdom is worried that a lack of additional stimulus and the myriad election issues could slow our recovery. And some of those fears appear to be reflected in the current market. Well, any weakness in the economy is really coming from the fact that many sectors, including and especially service-type activities, continue to be shut down or lightly used. The August data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that New York and California <laughs> had unemployment rates of 12.5% and 11.4% respectively, while the unemployment rate for the rest of the country, excluding these two characters, was only 7.6%. Now, just this past week, Florida, with 7.4% unemployment, and Indiana, with 6.4%, fully opened their economies. Now, these states, among many others, had lower unemployment than the national average, mainly because their shutdowns were less extreme. Gee, I wonder if anybody can make that correlation. You know, the competition between states that open and those that don't at all kinds of levels, political, business, sports, school, and even families, will lead to even more opening of the economy in the months ahead. It's, I mean, you're seeing it. <laughs> you're having protests for crying out, Pete. For, for a self-sustaining recovery to fully catch on, it's reopening, not additional stimulus. That's the key. Now, a lady named Grace Peters... She is J.P. Morgan's private bank's, um, what is she, head of equity strategies. She says that the industrial and construction material stocks will be among the sectors that will benefit as U.S. markets hit fresh highs over the next year. 
She added that investors should be adding cyclical exposure to their investment portfolios over the next 12 months. Those are ones that benefit from the economic recovery. Now, while there are excuse me, while there are also further bouts of stock market volatility, she said, she's recommending using share price share price drops to add more of those which see their prices move in line with economic cycles such as industrial and construction material stocks. Specifically, JP Morgan is advising investors to add within areas of business that are seeing structural growth. That would include digital transformation and healthcare innovation. And they're looking for the S&P to be uh, 35.50 at the end of this year and then 37.50 by a year from now in September. First Trust, uh, First Trust Portfolio says, despite the decline in profits, their capitalized profits model suggests that U.S. stocks remain cheap at today's interest rates. Matter of fact, uh, well, it can't work it out on the radio, but when you look at their that model, it's like, oh my goodness, it's really cheap. But it's important to recognize that all of that is in the rearview mirror and that they anticipate real GDP, GDP growth at between 25 and 30% for this quarter, which would be the fastest quarterly rate since World War II. Now, they do say that a full economic recovery is still a long way off, and they don't anticipate an unemployment rate below 4 until 2023. Jim Paulson of the Luthold Group, he's their chief investment strategist. His thing is that investors shouldn't delay putting new money to work and would be best served by targeting economically sensitive S&P groups. Seems to be a theme here. Now, I would, this is Mr. Paulson speaking, I would broaden out your bets away from tech and new era. I still own that. New leadership is being picked up by small caps, the cyclicals, and international stocks. Take advantage of the Wall Street pessimism while you still can. What's important? Focus on a thing that never changes. You need to reach your goals. It's never about the market. It's about your second home, the college fund, the retirement nest egg. No matter who gets appointed to the Supreme Court, no matter who lives in the White House after November, you still need to fund your dreams. So don't take any crazy actions just because of the election. We'll be back next week at uh, 9 Pacific to uh, offer you more insights and information. Thank you very much for listening. I do appreciate it a lot. I hope you find it helpful. My name is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.